Financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real. It's just your point of view. How does it feel for you? Einstein said he could never understand it all. Planets are spinning through space. Smile upon your face. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and I'll be sliding. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I am also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Roger Wiegand, who writes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who authors What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Again, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show. Thanks to you, we have become the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. I also want to thank our sponsors who make this show financially viable. They are, for the first hour, Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold, Sullivan Gold Corp., Dasha Capital, Richfield Ventures, Golden Minerals, Clifton Star, Silvercrest Mines, Duncan Park Holdings, and Swiss America. This week we have two guests. The first guest is John McManus of the John Birch Society. He will shed some light on the politics of America's move towards fascism, and he will explain how no less a conservative than William F. Buckley played a role in the enablement of the ruling elite to move America away from free markets and liberty towards fascism. One of the biggest questions we have on, our, on an ongoing basis on this show, and in my newsletter too, quite frankly, is whether the current economic crisis is resolved through the fires of hyperinflation or through a deflationary depression. We have had many guests on the show on both sides of that debate, but today Robert Blumen, who writes articles for the Mises Organization, will be with us during the second hour to help us understand the dynamics of both inflation and deflation, and he will explain why some of the arguments of many of the deflationists have, uh, that we've had on this show, actually, may be exaggerated, if not outright flawed. Well, with so much ground to cover and so little time, we are going directly to our first commercial break, but don't go away because we'll be right back with John McManus of the John Birch Society. Okay. 
Sparkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Sparkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Barkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Barkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Barkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its gold fields project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm pleased to have with me John McManus. He's my special guest for this week. John is from the John Birch Society. John McManus joined the staff of the John Birch Society in 1966. In 1973, Mr. McManus accepted the appointment by Robert Welch, the Society's founder, as the organization's Director of Public Affairs. In this post, he became and remains the Society's Chief Media Representative throughout the nation. He has appeared on hundreds of radio and television programs. He is one of the Society's few authorized spokesmen. Mr. McManus has written and produced numerous audiovisual uh, programs, including the popular DVD Overview of America, a moving tribute about America's constitutional roots. He has also written several books, including Financial Terrorism in 1993, William F. Buckley, Jr., The Pied Piper for the Establishment, he wrote that in 2002, and The Insider's Fifth Edition, he wrote in 2004. He is also publisher of the Society's member-only monthly bulletin, and Mr. McManus was named president of the John Birch Society in 1991. He can be reached by contacting Bill Hahn, that's the PR manager at 920-225-5606. Anyway, uh, welcome, John, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Well, it's excellent to have you. I've 
the John Birch Society is, uh, is a name that I've known for many years, and I want to get into uh, who the John Birch Society is, what, it, what the John Birch Society is all about. Uh, I, first of all, I'd like to, <coughs> excuse me, like to ask you, uh, I understand the John Birch Society is a nonprofit organization, is that right? That's correct, but we have never filed for tax exemption. We do not want to serve at the pleasure of the United States government. Okay, so so that they can't come back, the government can't come back and say, well, we we own some piece of you, and therefore you've got to alter your, your well, views. Well, they can't take away our tax-exempt status because we never asked for it. Okay, interesting, they, interesting. They've, they've done that to a lot of other organizations, and that's one of the things that Robert Welsh and his, and his brilliance, I'd say, uh, decided not to uh, uh, set us up for that situation because uh, at the proper moment they could just simply withdraw it and we'd have to go out of business. Okay, so Robert Welch was the founder. Um, who, who is responsible for the, comp- for the or- ongoing activities? Uh, and who, who owns, if you want to put that? It, it's a nonprofit organization, but who finances the activities of the John Birch Society? Members and friends of the society. Okay. The, the dues, and a lot of people assess themselves additional dues, $50 a month, $100 a month, uh, we do get advertising revenue from our magazine, mm-hmm. uh, and it's mostly contributions and, you know, freely given and not tax-exempt from the point of view of the giver. They don't get an exemption for their contributions to the society when they fill out their income tax. Uh, okay, unlike a lot of the churches and religious organizations that have that. and it's Right, and, and that's one of the reasons why a lot of the churches aren't speaking out. You know, I've yeah. often said that the IRS, uh, everybody fears the IRS because of the, the money that it takes from them. I've claimed that the IRS is a people control agency more so, mm-hmm. and it does. It does control a lot of people, and it keeps them from saying what they know is so, and they're afraid to say it. Mm. Very interesting point. Uh, so the John Birch Society, the purpose then is what? purpose is education followed by appropriate action. We want the American people to appreciate the wonder of the system given us by brave and far-seeing men 230-some-odd years ago. Mm-hmm. We want uh, the people then to say, look, we're being taken off course. Let's get back on course. Let's get mm-hmm. back to limited government under the Constitution. We say very simply that if the Constitution of the United States were fully enforced, the federal government would be 20% its size and 20% its cost, and wouldn't that be wonderful? Uh so the John, so really, the John Birch Society is a limited government. You would then take the Constitution of the United States literally, and then to mean to mean what they said at the time. That's right. We believe in original intent, and we believe in, in going back to the words of the founders. If you can't understand what the founders said, then obviously you don't understand the English language. It's pretty clear. No, it's pretty simple, yeah. Right, and and the old the old adage is simply this: if you don't go back to the attitude of the lawgiver, then why bother writing it down? Well, I, I read a very interesting um, uh, quote here from a book, uh, "The New Deal or Raw Deal" by Burton Folsom, and I'm hoping to have Mr. Folsom on this show sometime in the near future. But he had talked about Roosevelt saying uh, after he was sworn in uh, for one of his terms, he said that he. Uh, he really wanted to add, when he said he would uphold the Constitution, that he wanted to uphold the Constitution according to the way he understood it. So, I mean, I guess we've we've departed from the literal translation, and people have decided that they're going to choose what the Constitution says uh, according to what That's they right. should and, say. And, and who's to stop them from doing that other than the people? Uh, okay, and that's part of then what the John Birch Society is about, is, is holding... Precisely. 
uh, holding elected officials to and informing other people of how elected officials are not adhering to the Constitution that they swear every term to uphold. Right. I'll give you a, a, a classic example. A lot of congressmen and senators will say that they can do anything that they are not prohibited from doing by the Constitution. No. It turns the Constitution on its head. Sure. Right? Well, that I gives them the, the opportunity to do 95% of the things that governments want to do all throughout history. Oh, that's, that's incredible. But certainly, They will say that. Yeah. Well, they're certainly doing it. Um, I want to ask you about, uh, with respect to uh, the re- religion, does the John Birch Society hold a view on religion? Does it hold the, uh, the view that this is a Christian nation or a Judeo-Christian nation, or does it hold the view that this is a secular nation comprised of many uh, Christians and Jews and other people? Well, the latter is what we hold. We are not a religion. Uh-huh. But we do believe in what you call the judeo Christian traditions, mm-hmm. we say that the, cons- the government should be limited by the Constitution and the people should be limited by a freely accepted moral code like the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's very simple. Uh, the Constitution and the Ten Commandments is a wonderful uh, tandem, and we believe strongly in both. Um, so, so really it's a secular, the government is a secular institution, but... And in, it, and in some ways, you can say that about the John Birch Society, too. We are, mm-hmm. you know, there are Catholics, there are uh, Protestants, there are people who call themselves Christians, mm-hmm. we have Jewish members, we have people who don't practice any religion but live on a, uh, what they call an ethical code or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. They're all welcome. Mm-hmm. They're all welcome in the John Birch Society. As, uh, the members, the members, when the meeting is over, then they go at each other religiously. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's well, that was the intent of the Constitution, wasn't it? I mean, yes, uh, but. and and uh, so let me let me ask you about race. Do you have every kind of? Uh, you mentioned you have Jewish people, you have Catholics. Do you have various people of color, for example, oh, in the Birch yes. Society? Uh, I could show you a picture of speakers that we've had in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, a page that ha- I think it has 12 different black members of the John Birch Society mm-hmm. who were traveling the country on our Speakers Bureau. And we still have a couple today. We still have uh, Jesse Lee Peterson out in Los Angeles. We have Steve Kraft over in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And we have black members here and there. Uh, sometimes people say, well, how many? I said, I don't know. We don't <laughs> ask people. You don't have a quotas. We don't ask people when, when they join what, what, you know, I can certainly tell them I'm in front of a black person. Yeah, yeah. I can't tell them if I'm in front of a Jew, but Jewish people across the country who are members of the Birch Society say, well, whenever you run into this charge of anti-Semitism, please call me up and I'll come at my own expense to put it down. No. And, and we've well, had to ask people from time to time, not so much anymore, but that has been said so often about us that some people still harbor that uh, mistaken notion. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, I asked the question in part because it seems to me that's an image that the Birch Society has, and I want to get to the question of, of image of the Birch Society uh, somewhere down in our discussion today. But I'd like to ask you about money. What does the organization believe about money? Should the markets be free to use what individuals wish as a medium of exchange, or should government mandate and control the monetary system as indeed they do right now? Well, obviously the former, and that's mm-hmm. the subject of the book I wrote in 1993. It's called Financial Terrorism, Hijacking America Under the Threat of Bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. And I go into there, what is money and, and so forth, and what does the Constitution say about it? The Constitution says Congress shall have power to coin money, and that simply meant power to start a mint. They started the mint in 1792. They took the people's precious metals. 
stamp them into a coinage of a fixed size, weight, and purity, and that's it. Now, you go to the Federal Reserve today, and where do you get your authority to do what you're doing? And they will point to Congress has power to coin money, and they delegated that power to us. Mm -hmm. That's absurd. It's absolutely Mm -hmm. ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And so we've seen the value of the U.S. dollar shrink by 95% since the founding of the Federal Reserve in 1913. Well, the Congress did did something to allow the, the Federal Reserve to exist, did they not? That's right. The Congress passed it and therefore the Congress can abolish it, which is what I'd like to see happen. But what I would like to see happen is private coinage. I would like to see all kinds of people uh, producing uh, coinage of, uh, you know, dollar silver coins or or gold coins, one-ounce coins or whatever and so forth. And I always hear people say, whoa, somebody might uh, defraud you. Somebody might give you base metal and say it's really silver all throughout. I said, fine, take them to court. Mm -hmm. That's what you got a court system for. Oh, exactly right. And you say abolish. You say you'd like to see the Federal Reserve abolished, and I, I, um, I know that there's one congressman at least who's been a guest on this show a couple of times, Ron Paul, who has every uh, every time he enters Congress has has uh, has uh, issued a uh, you know has 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 sought to have that happen and also to abolish the uh, uh, the IRS. And Ron's view in terms of the monetary system is pretty much what you said, I think, and that is let's let the people decide what they use as a medium of exchange. And I think Ron is quite confident they would go back to what society has chosen as money for thousands of years, gold thousands silver. Thousands of years is correct. Go, okay. go to the Holy Scripture, and what do you find? You find mention of gold and silver, right? Uh, exactly right. And uh, Judas didn't betray Christ for paper dollars. <laughs> Nobody wanted the paper dollars. It was Judas pieces of silver, wasn't it? Right. Yeah, Judas. Judas didn't want the paper. Uh, and Aristotle had some very interesting things to say about uh, why gold uh, is money as well. He said it's, you know, it's durable. That's why we don't use wheat. It's divisible. That's why we don't, why we don't use uh, diamonds. Uh, it's convenient. That's why we don't use lead. It's uh, consistent. That's why we don't use real estate. And it has intrinsic value. That's why we don't or shouldn't use paper. Well, that's, so a, I, chapter, that's a chapter in the book I wrote. <laughs> is that right? Well, well you know, no, and the, I went through all of that. Right. And the name of that uh, book, again, if you'd tell us, Financial because I think terrorism. And that was written in 1993? 1993. I've been on some radio shows where the, uh, the, the host of the radio show said, how could you have written this book in 1993? You predicted mm-hmm. what has just happened to our country. I said, mm-hmm. yeah, I did. And it wasn't hard to do. All you got to do is what Robert Welch always said, project the lines. If we don't stop these people, here's what they intend to do. And they have accomplished an awful lot of what they intended to do. What we need is more people who are willing to say, okay, I want to know the whole truth. I want to get involved. We always say to them, okay, get involved with the John Birch Society. We, mm-hmm. we won't lead you astray. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly, uh, 1993, uh, kudos to you for that. But I, I do know that there were people that are friends of mine that certainly, uh, well, actually, there are friends, uh, a common friend of mine, a, a man I, I, I know you and I spoke before you came on the show, uh, George Muha, who was a, actually one of the few people that was at my wedding back in 1978. And George, uh, you know, was predicting this sort of thing as a member of the John Birch Society many, many years ago that we were going to see, I don't know precisely, but that things were going to fall apart. And in 2000, of course, my good friend uh, David Tice and other people uh, that have been a, a sort of Austrian-leaning uh, economic thinkers um, were, were certainly predicting this. And, you know, the mainstreams, and I hear it time and time again, 
they say when the market comes down really hard and we have some difficult times, oh, nobody could have predicted it. But yet you did, many other people did, if you have the framework and understand that the intervention in the, in the economy is causing all kinds of problems. But that, of course, isn't taught. Uh, they don't teach anything like free market economics in uh, economics 101 classes anymore, do they? No. It's, no uh, what they teach is how to get along with the system or try, how to try to get along with the system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you can't. You can't get along with this system. The, the system continues to, to rob the value of your savings and your retirement funds, your dollars, uh, through a process called inflation. Uh, certainly in my book, I've gone into great length to discuss that and, and what it really means and what it doesn't mean. Uh, so many Americans think inflation is rising prices, and I always say, if you believe that, you believe wet streets cause rain. Yeah, no, that's a cause and effect issue. It's a, certainly a, a, one of the issues, and I want to get to the issue of inflation and deflation if we have time sometime later in the show today, but uh, I'd like to just ask you there, I went to the John Birch we, uh, website, and I noticed there's something, uh, there's a, a number of videos that are very good, one uh, that's at the top of the list there, Obama's grand strategy to bankrupt America. Could you talk about that a little bit? Well, uh, we've already talked about it. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the grand strategy involves increasing indebtedness. Uh, we are now uh, witnessing $1.5 trillion of red ink uh, in each fiscal year, and it's predicted into the, the next several fiscal years. Uh, we are becoming beholden to uh, foreign nations, particularly uh, communist China, uh, who buys our debt and can now get to a point where they can either uh, control what we do and say, or they might just simply dump their indebtedness and destroy the dollar even further. So the, the, the ultimate goal is to have the United States uh, commit suicide <laughs> and then be brought into the new world order, which is world government and international socialism. Okay, let's get to, uh, if we might, just uh, momentarily at least, uh, who are these people? We had on our show recently Daniel Estulin, who is considered by many to be the premier authority on the Bilderberg Group. Uh, We've had his friend uh, Adrian Salbucci, an economist in Argentina, who talks about globalization and the uh, and and Daniel revealed that there are some people that are extremely wealthy that you never hear about. You know, I mean, we're we're always told that we, you know, we Bill Gates is in the news all the time is supposed to be the wealthiest human being, uh, the wealth wealthiest American at least. Uh, one of them, and, and Warren Buffett, and these these folks. Um, but according to Daniel, there are people that are you know that are out of sight, out of view. Uh, family wealth that, that goes back many, many, many years, many hundreds of years, in fact, according to Daniel, that are the seat of power. Could could you talk a little bit about that or, or perhaps just explain who these people are that are seeking to have world government? Well, we always point to David Rockefeller here in the United States. Mm-hmm. It was David Rockefeller who started the Bilderberger movement with Prince Bernhard of the Netherlands, who, of course, is uh, one of the controlling entities in Royal Dutch Shell, which is a hugely profitable and hugely uh, wealthy uh, uh, organization based in Holland. Mm -hmm. So there are people like that. Uh, You've got the George Soros's of the world. You've got Gates. You've got Buffett. They go to these Bilderberger meetings, Mm -hmm. closed meetings, uh, no press allowed, 
They, they seize control of a, of a resort, uh, nobody in, nobody out. They sometimes even bring their own cooks and their own waiters and their own Yeah, servers. so I understand. They, they get rid of the normal staff and bring in their own people because they, they're afraid they might not be able to trust the people. And, yeah, and attribution is not allowed. Now, you have political leaders from the United States. You have uh, corporate leaders from the United States. You have media personalities who go to these meetings. And uh, it, it smacks of something sinister because it's so secret. Yeah. There's nothing secret about the John Birch today. One of the original charges against us is that we were a secret society. And yeah. uh, Robert Welch always said, well, it's been a standard tactic throughout history of always accusing your opponent of what you are. Mm. A secret well. society. Is there a secret society that we believe has a design to bring about a new world order, world government, and socialism? Yes. That does set, set the John Birch Society apart from others. We believe that there is a conspiratorial clique at the center of what is happening. Mm -hmm. They have all kinds of people doing their will because they control great power, great wealth, great influence, and people who have no moral base will do whatever it takes to promote themselves, mm -hmm. including selling out their country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, country becomes secondary. secondary. Uh, uh, it doesn't even matter, I guess. Uh, well, to, not to only, you know, when they do that, then they're also selling out the freedom of their own children. Right. Uh, unless they feel that their own children can then be part of the elite running the world. Mm -hmm. And they're above the law, in essence, above the national laws. Yes. Well, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, t people want to discount that. But if you do, you have to rewrite history. History reeks with it. Even Holy Scripture reeks with it. Conspiracies all over the place. And yeah, it's nothing new in the in in human nature, is it? No, no. People would believe in a mafia conspiracy. They believe yeah. in a Watergate conspiracy. Right. But when the John Birch Society says there's a conspiracy that wants to build world government, oh, <laughs> and yeah, I couldn't say be. that. Well, I I think that you know, getting back to Estulin and and uh, maybe Salbucci as well, but both of those gentlemen, or at least Estulin, talks about how. Uh, you know, he doesn't see it so much as a conspiracy. If you see who these people are and how much they have, then what they're doing is sort of natural in terms of their abuse of, of uh, the resources of this world. I mean, it's, Well, that's right. And, and the, the, the conspiracy part of it that a lot of people want to discount is they don't tell you what the real goal is. Mm -hmm. The real goal is them running the world. No, the real goal, uh, the real goal that we're given all the time by Bernanke and by our president and others are is that they have our best interests at heart and they are doing everything they can. We needed to go off the gold standard. We needed to have a paper stand, a paper monetary system so it could be flexible so they could help us. Right. They should have been selling snake oil. Well, they were selling snake oil. I I I think that's the case. Now, let me ask you though, with respect to some of the people that are highly visible. I mean, we have. Well, we go to the Council on Foreign Relations, and we tell mm -hmm. people, look, the leadership of the Council on Foreign Relations, we believe, is part and part of the conspiracy. But there are 4,400 members in this organization, and most of these people are go-along-to-get-along. Mm -hmm. right? They go along with a program. They will do whatever it can. It, fav it favors them. It, it helps them in their career, in their, their bank account, their stature, and so forth. Sure. And, and these are the people that are running our country. <clears throat> There were 400 of them in the Obama administration. There were, there were 500 in the George W. Bush administration, mm -hmm. and they, more of them keep getting appointed. Mm -hmm. So we go, we have a financial crisis. So who do we have for the leaders of our financial uh, get us out of the problem? We have Geisner, we have Summers, 
and we have Volcker. They're all the members people. of the Council on Foreign Relations. And you could Both argue... Their meetings. Some of them are part of the Trilateral Commission. And it's all the same thing, and this has been going on for decades. We can go back to the, uh, the, 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 the Roosevelt administration. Right. Uh, he, he brought the Council on Foreign Relations into the government in the late 1930s. They've had control of it pretty much ever since. Right. So, do you, to what extent, though, do you think that Obama and and you know um, Hillary Clinton and these people are are aware of what the end game is here? Well, interesting. You know, uh, the Council on Foreign Relations is based on Park Avenue, in New York City. Yeah, and it's not totally secret. I mean, they publish oh, things too. Right. Well, they recently opened up an office in Washington, mm-hmm. and Hillary Clinton, as the Secretary of State of the United States, went to that new facility in Washington. And she said, well, we're glad to know that this is here because now I don't have to go so far to find out what to say and how to think. And she said that? Is that a she quote? She said that. Yeah. She actually said that. And, and, and it wasn't with tongue-in-cheek. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a statement. She, I'm sure she got a wrist slap because of it. Mm-hmm. But, but we got it on videotape, and, and we're showing it to people around the country. We're also showing people David Rockefeller and, and his book, Memoirs, wherein he said that uh, my family and I have been accused of being part of a conspiracy. Uh, if that's the charge, I plead guilty, and I'm proud of it. Oh, that's very interesting. Well, I would imagine that, though, uh, with respect to Hillary, she perhaps even believes that, that she's going to, to, to listen and talk to the intellectuals, to the people that really know the most, and that, uh, you know, I mean, no, no reason for her to waste her time with common folks. Okay, so what does this, what does this Council on Foreign Relations stand for? Yes, well, let me know. The most explicit statement was made by a man named Richard Gardner as far back as 1974. And he said, it shall be our purpose to perform an end run around national sovereignty, eroding it piece by piece. He actually said that in print. Mm -hmm. And, and of course, I always say to an audience, I say, now, how many people in the Council on Foreign Relations do you think resigned when they saw that that was really the goal? Mm -hmm. And, And the answer is none. 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 No. No, as a matter of fact, the uh, Council of Foreign Relations has not been timid about talking about the need to sort of pull together uh, common alliances and common currencies. Uh, the, Euro, the Euro, I suppose, would be uh, a good example of that. There's talk about the Amero, where the United States, uh, Mexico, and Canada would come together. Yep. Do you have any, any, any uh, knowledge about that? Oh, I do. I, I know that this is the plan. Uh-huh. I know I think that the John Birch Society has been instrumental in stopping it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was part of what was called the North American Union. Mm-hmm. It came about during the middle of the George Bush administration. Mm-hmm. And he got together with Vicente Fox in Mexico and Harp and uh, Paul. Ma- it was Paul Martin in Canada mm-hmm. at the time, and they 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 started the Security and Prosperity Partnership, and then they were talking about the North American Union. Mm-hmm. And that would be the merger of the three countries. Uh, mm-hmm. There was a secret meeting held up in Banff in Canada. Beautiful place. Uh, yeah, led by uh, George Schultz, a prominent member of the Council on Foreign Relations for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And they went on and they talked about what they intended to do and so forth. Well, there was a Canadian there 
who blew the whistle on him come out with the documents, and, and we got a hold of them, and we started publicizing this across the country. Mm-hmm. And the whole business of a North American Union has been put on, uh, I, I guess you could say, has been put on a back burner. But I, I, I do believe that they intend that, and they want to bring it back, and they will. Mm-hmm. And uh, if it came out of the George Bush administration, it will come out of the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. Uh, the difference between a Republican and a Democrat at the top is something like table manners, and I'm not going to say which has the better. <laughs> okay. Well, the council, so this was a council of foreign relations meeting that you're talking about that went on in Banff? Uh, no, it wasn't that. Uh, it was a meeting of Mexicans and, and Canadians and, and U.S., but the okay. people who were there from the U.S. were mostly Council on Foreign Relations persons. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So the strategy here, though, is to buy out the leaders in these various countries. For example, Canada. How, um, how much subservient do you think Canada is? How much has Canada been, been bought out, basically, by, the same, by this ruling elite? Well, you know, even more so than our country. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're farther into a lot of the problems that these people want to create than are we here in the United States. Mm-hmm. So they go from uh, Paul Martin to the new man, Harper, and, and no change. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the awful part, I've been to Canada. I went to one of the meetings of this uh, pro-North American Union things up in Montebello in Canada. I couldn't get near the hotel. They had armed guards all over the place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I actually got tear-gassed. Mm-hmm. But... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, they, the the leadership of the resistance to this in Canada, they're all left-wingers. They're opposed to it because of environmental concerns and so forth. I, I came back after meeting some of the leaders of these people and, and saying, thank God for Robert Welsh. Thank God he started the John Birch Society and, and helped us to understand that less government is the answer, not more. Well, it seem, certainly seems we've had totalitarian governments you've had you've had the biggest environmental problems and um, you know certainly what was our EPA doing in the Gulf of Mexico I mean it certainly didn't stop anything there did they no. uh, I you know what's interesting about the EPA it was not even a law uh, an organization created by law hmm. it was an executive order signed by President Richard Nixon hmm. Nixon first well. sentence in the Constitution says all lawmaking power belongs in Congress so right there is a doesn't belong in the Supreme Court, and it doesn't belong in an executive order signed by the president. Hmm. So you get the first sentence of the Constitution is being trashed, and then the rest of it is as well. We've got to get back to it. Well, that's very interesting. I, I want to ask you uh, some more questions, John. Uh, we have a lot more to talk about. We've barely scratched the surface here, but it is time for a commercial break. Uh, when we come back, I want to ask you about the Arizona bill, the Arizona law that... Uh, uh, that would have uh, immigrants, illegal, illegal, illegal aliens, I should say, sent back uh, to their to their native countries, uh, and as I understand it, in accordance with federal law. And uh, you know, I have uh, some questions to ask you. Why would the president of the United States be against uh, enforcing federal law? But we'll get back to that uh, and many, many more things, John. As soon as we take a break uh, for commercials here, and so folks, don't go back, don't go away. We'll be right back with John McManus. Uh, as soon as the commercial break is over.
Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by. Dasha Capital is offering the world's first and only corporate stockpile of rare earth minerals, giving investors the ability to participate in the physical ownership of these critical elements without the associated mining and execution risk. Rare earth elements are used in many industries, from aerospace and automotive to high-tech and green tech. Dasha Capital is listed on the TSX.V in Toronto under the symbol DAC and on the OTCQX in the U.S. under symbol DCHAF. Please visit www.dashacapital.com to learn more. That's D-A-C-H-A-Capital.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love ride. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. And again, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show and for making this the most popular show on the Voice America Business Channel. I also, of course, want to thank our sponsors for the second hour of this show. They are Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold, Sullivan Gold Corp., Dasha Capital, Richfield Ventures, Brigus Gold Corp., Everton Resources, Millrock Resources, Golden Hope Mines, and Athabasca Uranium. Well, we're back here now with John McManus of the John Birch Society. And, John, when we left for a break, I said I'd like to, I'd like to talk to you about the Arizona bill, the bill that is now being challenged by the President of the United States. Now, it's my understanding, and I, I must admit that I haven't researched this thoroughly, so please correct me if, if I'm wrong, but it's my understanding that this bill was intended to really try to enforce federal law. And if that's the case, then why would the President of the United States be against a bill that would enforce federal law? Because the, fed, the government of the United States wants to be the final arbiter about everything. Uh, this this whole issue in Arizona is going to come down to states' rights versus federal domination, and that's good. I want to see that made that case made. I want to see states' rights come back. I want to see states being able to nullify a law that they find unconstitutional, mm. refusing to obey a law that they find unconstitutional, as the Real ID Act. Uh, that that is virtually a dead issue because the states refused to go along with its provisions. So I would like to see that happen. Now, the Arizona law, as you say, 
uh, is simply doing in Arizona what the federal government should be doing. The federal government has a responsibility, Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution, to protect the states against invasion. And it didn't say military invasion. It said invasion. If you've got 12, 20 million people in your country who've come across the border illegally, that's an invasion. Yeah. So the federal government isn't doing its job, and Arizona's finally fed up and said, okay, well, we're going to take some steps here, and we're going to do what we think is needed to uh, have these people either leave our country or leave our state. Uh, there was a similar law passed in Oklahoma a few years ago, mm-hmm. and the illegal immigrants moved to Texas. <laughs> and, oh, is that what happened? And then, yeah. and Texas, so it should be- have, Texas should have followed suit, but they didn't. So, you know, it's an abominable situation. But one of the things that, that people don't factor into this is that the reason that a lot of the politicians and Mr. Obama himself don't want to deal with the illegal immigration problem is that they want these people on the voting rolls. Mm-hmm. They want amnesty and they want them voting. Mm-hmm. And they know who they'll vote for if they get them on the rolls. Now, there's already, according to a group called the Social Contract, they're good people. They put out a report. They say as many as 2.7 million illegal immigrants voted in 2006. Wow. 2.7 million. That was 2006. Illegal immigrants. Yeah, more in 08 and more again now in, in 2010. This is an abomination. Is this enough to swing a congressional district? Of course. Mm. A presidential race? Maybe. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So th- that's one of the real motivations behind not dealing with this problem. All right. But what I hear you saying here, this is a really bigger issue even, because uh, I heard on Bloomberg Radio this morning as I was taking my shower here in New York that that there are 26 other states that are contemplating similar laws to that passed by Arizona with respect to illegal illegal aliens so there must be an upswelling of support from the from the masses of from average americans that are just getting really fed up with this and i can understand it because i was just we were just talking to a a gentleman from um from brazil that was working doing some work on our house and he's a legal alien here and he talked about a lot of other people that were illegal aliens and they talked about how the illegal people would get free health care and all kinds of other benefits where those that bothered to uh, to become legalized had to pay for those same benefits. Right. So people are becoming extremely angry about this, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, everything's upside down. Yeah. Uh, it was it's in unjust. the 90s, in the mid-90s, the California proposition that was passed overwhelmingly by the people in California said no uh, welfare, housing, medical care, except in extreme emergencies and so forth for illegal immigrants. It was overwhelmingly passed, and it was knocked down within a year by a federal judge. So we're, if we're getting back to the states' rights issue, there, this is really big. This is really, really important because it's not just this issue. There's many, many other issues. Absolutely. I, I know that there are some – go ahead. Well, I'm glad to see that, that it's going to be fought along these lines. Yeah. And I hope that Arizona will continue to press on that, no, we have our rights in the states. The states created the federal government. The creature mm-hmm. has become greater than the creator. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all backwards. So many things in this country are backwards. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, what we want is we want some states doing what they want within their own borders, and some of them making mistakes. And, of course, the mistakes would be immediately obvious because other states didn't do that. Competition amongst the states to be the best state produces excellence. 
You've got all power in the central government in the central government in Washington D.C. You don't get excellence. You, you don't get competition. You get, you get corruption. You get corruption. corruption. You get monopoly. You get mm-hmm. so. Let's get back to what the founding fathers, in their brilliance, gave us. I know that one other issue that some states have been uh, have have been um, moving on is the monetary issue, and I don't know how serious this is, but there's a number of states that have said that uh, you know maybe we should coin our own money. Yeah, I think New Hampshire has discussed that. Montana probably, yeah, and others. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not so sure that that's the way to go on that, but. Uh, I don't know that it's really a state responsibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe not. I would like to see private mints starting issuing their own money. And, yeah, a state or not. I mean, in yeah, not a state issue, but just wherever people are to be able to... Yeah, and if anybody I mean, produces something that's not real, then take them to court. It seems like such a basic right, doesn't it? That if I have, if I want to barter with my neighbor and he wants to do something for me, wants to, you know, do some plumbing for me, and I'll write, give him a one-year subscription to my newsletter or something, we should be able to do that. That's absolutely. Or if he wants to take a piece of gold, a half an ounce of gold for the plumbing work he does, I should be able to do that without government telling me I can't. It seems like such a basic, natural right to be able to do that, and yet our government is saying, no, we can't, we want a piece of everything you do. That's right, and and not only a piece of everything you do, but we want to continue to erode the value of the money you do have that we issue, because that's a really a, a very clever and sinister form of taxation that most mm-hmm. people haven't figured out. Well, yeah, through the inflation process, it's, it's unknown to people. They don't even really make the connection, connect the dots, do they, between right, right. government spending and, and debt? Let me, make, and then... let me make a point here, and it's mm-hmm. a very simple point. There is no alternative to saving the system. Right. I, I, I know people that they got a cabin up in the woods yep. storing food. Mm-hmm. They've got their cache of silver coins and gold coins and so forth. Mm-hmm. But all I have to do is be the only person who comes downtown who isn't losing weight because he has plenty to eat. Yeah. And his neighbors will go after him. <laughs> well, that's that's it. that's really true, isn't it? And I know yeah. some people, a few people who are wealthy enough to be able to to have homes in several different countries too. But if the whole global system comes tumbling down, I mean, it's it, you're right. I mean, we it, the system is what is most important. So it's it's worth a try, isn't it, to try to? Well, and the system is the constitution limited government, and uh, get the government out of the money business. Okay, so getting back to that constitutional issue and the issue of states, as you say, the states created the federal government, not the other way around. What do you think the chances are of the Arizona law being upheld, or do you think uh, the likelihood is that Obama will prevail? I don't know. It's certainly, well, you know, the the judge that uh, cut into the the, uh, meat of the, the, the law today or yesterday it was, I guess, uh, a Clinton appointee. Uh, now, the appeal will go to San Francisco, the Federal Court of Appeals in San Francisco, notoriously left-wing. Mm-hmm. All right? It may end up in the Supreme Court of the United States where it might stand a chance of being upheld. Mm-hmm. But, but if it is, in fact, completely obliterated, then I think you're going to see states' rights. I think Arizona is going to come back and say, Okay, federal government, that's your opinion. Here's ours. Mm-hmm. And I hope they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the 26 other states, I've seen numbers that say even more than 26 other states are considering the same thing. Uh, and one of the reasons that they're doing it is the monetary cost. 
Mm-hmm. It's the Federation for American Immigration Reform, uh, FAIR, and down in the D.C. area. They put out a figure recently. They said illegal immigration is costing taxpayers for welfare, education, medical care, and so forth, $113 billion a year. Mm-hmm. No wonder California is in, in red ink. No wonder right. Arizona is in red ink. No wonder all the states are, are hurting and having to cut back on police and firemen and, and so forth, things that, that they don't want to cut back on. Mm-hmm. But here they are, and they're doing it. So, Yeah, that, that's very interesting. Uh, and no wonder then they need to raise our taxes, right? Right. Ra- raise the, the tax- people that are... Yeah, the people that are... Go ahead. <laughs> well, there's, there's only a limit that you can go on raising taxes. And right. some of these governors understand that. Look at Schwarzenegger out in California. Mm-hmm. I mean, he doesn't want to raise taxes. I mean, he, he's afraid of uh, absolute rebellion out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he may get it. But you've got to do something, and the something is less government is the answer. Interesting. Again, I would like to uh, just recall another person we had as a guest on this show, Dmitry Orlov. He uh, a Russian, uh, born in Russia. His parents brought him to the United States when he was about 12 years of age. He's an engineer, and his, his job took him back to the Soviet Union in his early adulthood when he saw the Soviet Union collapse. And he's written a book called Reinventing Collapse. And he's suggesting that, in fact, the United States is following the same path as Russia and that, in fact, what we're going to see is a uh, is the states, the local governments, pulling away from the federal government because of the parasitic nature of the federal governments taking, taking, taking from the uh, from the local governments. Uh, and so you're, I think, you're basically saying the same thing. Yes, I am. Uh, the federal government is using the supremacy clause in the Constitution for a wrong purpose. The supremacy clause says at the end of the Constitution that this Constitution shall be the supreme law of the land. Okay, so they're saying that you can't do anything in your state that we claim jurisdiction over. That's the, that's the cry against Arizona right now. Mm-hmm. Right? The supremacy clause, I don't know whether they even said the, the word supremacy clause, but that's the way they're operating. Mm-hmm. Uh, not too long ago, there's a small community outside Dallas called Farmer's Branch. Farmer's Branch had an illegal immigrant problem. So they passed a law at city council saying no more allowing uh, hiring or housing illegal immigrants. And a federal official swooped down on, on Farmer's Branch, Texas, and said, no, nope, you have to wipe your law off the books because this is a federal matter and we'll take care of it. Supremacy mm. clause. No. So that's what this is going to come down to. That's not what the supremacy clause meant by the founders who wrote the Constitution. Mm-hmm. It's not what was intended, and it's not what was believed for many, many years up until recently. Mm-hmm. So this is what's going to happen with Arizona. It, is the federal government the sole uh, ju- jurisdiction over the subject of illegal immigrants? We will see. Oh, we, we will see. Be- good, good for Arizona. Very, very interesting uh, issue, and more than interesting, very vital, really. Absolutely. Uh, in terms of competition, I mean, the notion was that if of uh, the founding fathers was that if there's something egregious uh, in in a given state, you would at least have the opportunity to leave and go to another state where maybe precisely right. But and, yeah, but we also we also have to factor in the the extremely valuable Tenth Amendment. You know, mm-hmm. those 
powers not given to the federal government are reserved to the states and the people. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and that could, couldn't be more clear. Happily, there's a Tenth Amendment center out in California. I've met those people. I've spoken on the same program with some of those people. They're promoting the Tenth Amendment. Good for them. Mm-hmm. And I'm promoting it myself. I wrote a little booklet about uh, restoring the rights of the people and the states through ad- adherence to the Constitution. I'll have to Let, send you a copy of that. I would love to see that. I'd love to see that. Let me ask you, though, here's another issue. When it comes to states' rights, uh, you'll see especially liberals, but Republicans, and, well, Republicans are liberals, most of them, but you'll see the, the notion of race, that you had to have a strong federal government step in against the states because the states, um, especially the southern states, it was alleged, were, you know, and I guess you could make the case for sure, that there was abuse of human rights, of, of, the, nat- of, the, of the rights of, of black people um, in, uh, in those states. And so the federal government had to come in and right that wrong. How do you respond to that argument? Well, they did it properly. They amended the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And they said that there shall be no no indentured servitude. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. That's the way to do it. Uh-huh. And, and people who always bring up the race issue today, I said, okay, let me bring it up. Here's my, my comment about the race issue. Let's celebrate the fact that the United States did away with slavery. Mm-hmm. They don't want to talk about that. Yeah. They want just the opposite. They want to go, you know, they want to, and, and, and now you see the Tea Party and you see others, and of course the Birch Society over the years being accused of being racist. Yeah. Which is, you know, it's easy to do. I have a quote here from a fellow named uh, Vladimir Lenin. (laughs) He said, we can and must write in a language which sows among the masses hate, revulsion, and scorn toward those who disagree with us. Uh Isn't that beautiful? (laughs) Well, that's what's being done, no doubt about it. Well, it certainly was done to the Birch Society. Every nasty thing you can imagine was said about the Birch Society. Well, um, we're like the Klan, we're like the Nazis, we're like the uh, yeah. everything right across the. None of it has any substance whatsoever. Yeah, that that's very interesting. So, uh, I, I, there's so much more to talk about. I want to ask you though. Uh, you mentioned the Council of Foreign Relations a while ago. Um, and you know, uh, we don't have time to get into these various organizations of the ruling elite. But let's. I'd like to ask you about Glenn Beck. Glenn Beck is, a, you know, a rising star, a big star in the media these days, and he's talked about the Council of Foreign Relations. Apparently, has sort of shed some light on it. I'm wondering, though, is Glenn Beck for real, or is he somebody that that maybe can't be trusted? Is he possibly somebody like a William F. Buckley, who? Uh, who, who in the end turned out not to be such a friend of, of the Constitution. What, is, what are your thoughts on Glenn Beck? Well, until Glenn Beck goes off the deep end, uh, I don't see any reason not to trust the man. I, I, uh, I get people telling me, well, you know, his real boss is Rupert Murdoch, and he's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Mm-hmm. I say, yeah, you're right about that. But let's realize that a lot of people in the Council on Foreign Relations have been invited into that organization in order to make the organization seem like it's a mixture rather right. than all bad. And, and some of them are brought in hoping that they will grab on to the real goal of the Council on Foreign Relations. Right. They can be converted. It's always been world government. Right. So I don't know. I don't know that Rupert Murdoch is going to come down on Glenn Beck and, and, and say, okay, you're done, or okay, you change your tune, or you're out of here, or, or whatever. But in the meantime, what Glenn Beck is doing, he's getting a lot of people information that they haven't gotten. And I think Glenn Beck is getting a lot of his information from the John Birch Society. He hasn't yet said that, but 
for him to be be talking about uh, Edward Mandel House's book, Philip Drew, Administrator, for him to be uh, talking about this and that and some other things that we've been talking about for years, uh, if he wants the, the proper slant on it, he goes to the Birch Society, and some of that, I guess, is, has been said by him, and, and a lot of our members have said, he's stealing our material. I said, good, aren't you glad? <laughs> Yeah, let, let me just ask you, you mentioned the name House, uh, Mr. House, who was, I believe, part of, uh, influential in the Wilson administration, perhaps? Oh, yeah, he was, he was the guru of the Wilson administration, a man behind the scenes, very powerful, very dangerous. He's the man who wrote a book called Philip Drew Administrator. He said in it he was working for socialism as dreamed of by Karl Marx. He dedicated the book to, uh, the dedicatory quote is to a man named Giuseppe Mazzini, who was the head of a conspiracy to rule the world out of Italy in the middle 1800s. Mm -hmm. uh, incredible in individual. He was the man who, who planted ideas in Wilson, who, who schmoozed them, who, who got him to do this and that and everything else. And what's also interesting about Edward Mandel House is that when Franklin Roosevelt won the nomination of the Democrat Party in 1932 on a very conservative platform, the very first person he went to see was Edward Mandel House, hmm. right after the convention was over. He journeyed well, up to Gloucester, Massachusetts, to visit House, who was an old man at the time in his summer home in Gloucester, Massachusetts. Interesting. Uh, Ed Griffin, who we've had on this show, has written the book Creature from Jekyll Island. Old friend of mine. Do you know Ed? Oh, mm -hmm. I know him very well. Uh, he's been on our show twice, and Ed talked about uh, Mr. House, and I... I, I can't remember exactly, but he must have had some ties to some pretty wealthy, influential people then. Yes, he did, and he was an Anglophile. He got he got a lot of uh, uh, help out of out of England. He wanted uh -huh. the United States to get, go back under England's control. He wanted to to uh, uh, do away with the independence of of our country. Uh, you know, I'm of Irish descent. I, I I don't want that for that reason, but I want <laughs> for a lot of other reasons besides. Well, what do you think? Has uh, Mr. House's uh, dream come true to an extent? I think I, I think Edward Mandel House was the arch conspirator of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. All right, and I think that what he set in motion is being borne out. What he wanted, uh, he wanted a social security system. He wanted a centralization of power in Washington. He wanted an imperial president. He wanted uh, to do away with uh, a lot of the constitutional limitations and so forth. Very dangerous man. And he wrote it in a book. The book's available. We sell the book in the John Birch Society. Oh. And if we hadn't been doing that, Glenn Beck would never have heard of it. Let me ask you while we're, just, just so I don't forget before we say goodbye, and we've only got about maybe five, six, seven minutes more to go here. Uh, how can people um, avail themselves to the materials at the Birch Society? What is your website? Website is jbs.org. Easy enough. J and right. John Birch Society org. Pamphlets, our book. We have a magazine. We put out a magazine every second week called The New American. It's peerless. And I say that because I'm the publisher. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I also well, write articles for it. There's it, nothing like it. I mean, it, a lot of people I've met across, uh, your magazine is the best by far. All right. mm -hmm. Every second week, The New American, $39 a year. Or you can go to a phone. You can call 1-800-JBS-USA-1, and that'll put you into the John Birch Society. 
You can order our DVDs. You can order our magazines. You can order our books that we have, anything that we have. We're glad to hear from anybody, and you're under no obligation if you contact us. I would love to talk to you about a lot of different topics. Like you wanted to ask me about, uh, about my old friend Larry McDonald. Absolutely. That's one thing I have to get to because uh, I think that's so important that people understand what really happened there. I mean, there's issues like the Obama health care, the economy, all that stuff we could talk to you about, but we have guests on here all the time that take probably a similar view to what you would take on those issues, but where I think where you can shed some light uh, to, uh, for our listeners that, that can't be shed from a lot of other guests is on the issue of the Birch Society and, and conspiratorial politics and things that were going on, which brings me then, of course, to Larry McDonald, Congressman McDonald. On September 1st, 1983, uh, he was very much a rising star, I might add, at that point in time. He was on flight, Korean Airlines flight zero, uh, 007 as it was flying from Alaska uh, over the Soviet Union. It was blown out of the air. It was going en route to Seoul. Uh, this was a civilian airliner that was shot down by Soviet fighter planes, and all 269 people were killed. What can you tell us about that? Well, first of all, Larry McDonald was a congressman. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he was in his sixth or seventh term. Uh, rising star, as you say. Uh, he was uh, making his eye on a Senate seat, and I think he wanted to be President of the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, six months before the date that you mentioned, September 1st, 83, he was named the head of the John Birch Society. Mm -hmm. uh, the man who had founded it, Robert Welsh, was in declining health. He became Chairman Emeritus. Larry became the head of the John Birch Society. Six months later, he's aboard this plane, and we never saw him again. Uh, uh, the attitude spread is that the plane was shot out of the sky and it landed in the ocean and nobody's ever seen it. Uh, we could prove to anybody that the plane landed. The plane landed on Sakhalin Island. All 269 people aboard that plane have never been heard from again. Uh, it was a monstrous crime. All right? Now, why did the plane get attacked? Uh, how did it happen when you had an experienced pilot who was off course, who was flying into Soviet airspace, was incommunicado with the people at the radio stations, both in front of him and behind him, and uh, all of a sudden he gets attacked by a Soviet fighter plane. I think he had a gun at his head. I think he was, uh, more or less, the plane was hijacked. And uh, the passengers may not have even known that. But what happened after... We don't know. People have asked me over and over again, did the plane get attacked because Larry McDonald was aboard? My answer is, I don't know for sure, but nothing else makes any sense. Mm -hmm. right. So you're telling me that this was not shot out of the air, in fact, it oh, ended. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. And you have I proof can, of that. Well, I can demonstrate that to you very easily with some articles that we published in the New American Magazine. It was mm -hmm. aloft for about 12 minutes. I think the plane was hit by a heat-seeking heat missile, Mm -hmm. uh, one of the outer engines of a of a 747, there were two engines hanging from the wing on each side, mm -hmm. and one of the engines was damaged. And, and those planes could fly with one engine, especially when they were already in the air. Mm -hmm. they were, there's lots of examples of 747s having terrible accidents and yet being able to land somewhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, we, we, we could document from uh, reports that we, we did see and have them go over by uh, pilots who are members of the John Birch Society who conclude, I think they said it was, that the plane was in the air for 12 minutes. I have newspaper clippings, by the way, the, the morning after, 
saying plane lands on Sakhalin Island. Hmm. And bingo, the, the whole situation was changed, and now all of a sudden the plane was was attacked, crashed into the ocean, we can't find it, and so forth. Years later, the Soviets claimed to have found it, and they sent the black box, and the black box had nothing on it. <laughs> oh, so it was oh. a monstrous crime, and the Soviets got away with it. Why? Help us connect the dots here. Why would the Soviets do something like that? The Soviets would do something like that because the enemy of those who had built the Soviet Union into a great power and sustained them all those years was the government of the United States in the hands of people who want world government. And Larry McDonald was a threat. And so Larry McDonald had to be taken away. He was very much a vocal critic of the communist system, but he was also very much a vocal critic of the direction of things in the United States uh, toward statism. Very much, very much. I mean, he was a real John Bircher. Uh, he, he, he was one who would say, there's a communism as sure, there's, there's a conspiracy as sure as there's a law of gravity. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, Larry McDonald didn't pull his punches. He was a leader among Congress. He was way out in front, all kinds of people behind him now, getting more bold and more bold because Larry was taking all the arrows. Larry, mm-hmm. and he didn't mind a bit. But mm-hmm. say what you want about me. Say what you want. Go ahead. All right. yeah. Here's my record. Here's what I stand for. Here's what I'm going to say. Here's what I'm going to do. Uh, he was a mountain of a man. I miss him. Yeah. Was it? 27 years ago. 27 years ago. He was, uh, he was a very handsome, uh, fairly young guy at that stage, very aggressive. Uh, you know, he had all the, all the markings of, of a glamorous, uh, successful politician. Absolutely. But he was one that wasn't going to play the game according to the way uh, the ruling elite or the people with the money and the power wanted it right. played, I guess. He was also a medical doctor. He was a medical doctor. Right. Very bright guy. Mm-hmm. I, mean, uh, I, I love to be in touch with Larry. I, he was a good friend of mine. I, I, yeah. I worked yeah. with him in many Birch affairs, and I was with him, and we, we shared our opinions back and forth. And, uh, you know, we saw eye to eye on just about everything, but, mm-hmm. but he was a congressman. I was mm-hmm. just, a, uh, just a Birch Society public relations man at the time. I eventually mm-hmm. became the president, mm-hmm. but uh, 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 I'm not really in charge as much as uh, we have a fellow... Above me is a CEO. His name is Arthur Thompson. Mm-hmm. Wonderful guy, good friend as well as a. And he does some videos, I think, sometimes. Yes, he time does. Time. He's a guy. He's a guy I, I really love to work with. As, mm-hmm. uh, but Larry was Larry was a man on a white horse, and uh, he had to be stopped. Unfortunately, he did that. Now, a point that I want to make is he was told by many friends, if you ever fly out of the country, don't go on anything but a U.S. plane. Hmm. I don't think the Soviets would have attacked the U.S. plane. They attacked the Korean airliner. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And we went on the Korean airliner because they supplied the tickets. Mm-hmm. And he was going to Korea uh, to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the end of hostilities at the end of the Korean War, which war has never ended, by the way, but uh, 1953 was the, uh, the, the, the truce, and 30 years later was 1983, and that's why he was going there. They were having mm-hmm. a big celebration. Mm-hmm. There's so many more things to ask you about, and we just don't have very much time. But I do have to ask you about, um, you wrote a book on William F. Buckley. Could you just, just give our listeners uh, maybe a, a 30 to second or a one-minute synopsis on that book and, and very, what you were talking about? He was a very, very clever individual who served his masters all during his life. And that will come across as a wild statement by a member of the John Birch Society. Mm-hmm. But I wrote a 250-page book to show that this is the case. And 
uh, one of the men who worked for Buckley all during the, the years, 21 years, in fact, a man named Joseph Sobran, he's recently read the book, and he just said, Jack, this is amazing, absolutely amazing. I wish I knew what you have in this book when I worked for that man. So he's getting other people wherever he can to uh, read the book and so forth. I'm sorry to say it's pretty much out of print, although there are some secondhand copies available on uh, Amazon.com. I've, I've been told that anyway. But uh, William Buckley was the greatest enemy the Birch Society ever had. He Very interesting because William, Buff William F. Buckley appeared to be a real conservative. I mean, I can remember my good friend George Muha warning me about Buckley many, many years ago. And I said, what do you mean, George? I mean, this guy's saying all the right things. Well, if you looked in beneath the hood, you realized that probably there were he wasn't what he pretended to be, at least in many ways. Well, that's what I wrote about in my book, right? And it's unfortunate. I would like I, I started my career as a conservative by saluting William Buckley in mm -hmm. for an mm -hmm. attack on Robert Welsh. They published the letter that I wrote in 1962. A member of the Birch Society contacted me and said, "Are you basing your attitude about what Robert Welsh has said, or what others have said of him?" Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was a very good question. Yeah. I, yeah, I surprised the guy. I wrote back to him. I said, "Well, send me what you think I need to know." Yeah, and there began a torturous reevaluation. So, uh, the, the story of William Buckley is the story of the conspiracy against civilization. Very interesting. Uh, very interesting the way that worked out. Uh, there is so much more to talk about. I, I want to ask you, though, um, in the Declaration of Independence, um, you know, our, it, it was written about how you know we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal; they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. And it went on to say about how that sometimes when governments become abusive and they uh, usurp the rights of individuals, these natural rights that are given to us by our Creator that we have not only the right, but indeed the duty to overthrow governments. Do you think we've gotten to the point yet? Uh, I, might, I might just add that the, in that same document, they, uh, you know, our founders said that they don't, they don't want this to be an everyday occurrence. This isn't something we should take lightly. But when, when government becomes so tyrannical and it, it takes away our individual liberties that are given to us by our creator, we not only have the right, but the duty to overthrow that government. Do you think we've gotten to that point yet? No, I don't. And the reason I don't is that we already have the system. If we overthrew the government that we have today in place, what would we put in its place? Mm -hmm. right? We already have as good a government as you're going to find throughout the course of mankind's history called the Constitution of the United States. So we don't have to overthrow the government. We just have to overthrow the people who are betraying their oath. I, I got your point. So that the the framework is there. We just need Absolutely. to go back to obeying and and taking literally what the Constitution says. Exactly right. We don't have to overthrow the government. We have to overthrow the people who are abusing their oath to the Constitution. John, we could talk for hours. I'm sure you could. You have so much more to say, and maybe we'll we'll certainly have to have you back again sometime if you're willing to come back. I would just. Uh, like to ask you though, we didn't talk much about economics because, as I say, that's the topic very often on this show. And you have things over and beyond economics. Certainly, everything we've talked about today affects our lives and our freedoms and our uh, our economic well-being. But uh, do you have a sense of how this thing, if it isn't 
stopped. If we continue going with more bailouts, more deficit spending, more stimulus, more money creation, how is this going to? Cre- how do you think this will play out? Do you think it, do you think it's going to d- destruct through uh, some hyperinflation or through some deflationary depression? Or what's your best guess? Well, my best guess is if we don't stop them, they will destroy the monetary system in the United States. They will put us under United Nations monetary system, the IMF or something like that, mm-hmm. and then uh, the, the screws will be tightened with more United Nations bureaus, uh, commissions, and so forth, moving into this and that openly. They're already in an awful lot of them already, and total government will be the answer. But I think the economic threat is the main one, and that was that's the one that scares me the most. Mm-hmm. Because each time we have an economic catastrophe, it, they use that as an excuse to take away more freedoms, more liberties, and to intervene even more in the economy. Right. Never let a crisis go to waste. Right? Yeah. <laughs> That's, it's very sad. Um, and, and so, again, let people know uh, it's, it's J, JBS.org? JBS.org. John Burtz is hey, JBS.org or 1-800-JBS-USA-1. Now, there. let me say this. The way to take our country back is to start at the House of Representatives. Mm-hmm. The power of the purse is there. All bills for raising revenue must originate in the House. All right? So I say that if you get 8 or 10 or 12 more, maybe 15 more people like Ron Paul elected to Congress, you have shifted the momentum. And a lot of the people who are saying to themselves, I only want to get reelected. What do I have to do? They'll go to the right instead of to the left, mm-hmm. and you can begin to unwind all of the destruction that has been already put in place. Well, I think that's probably a good place to end it, John. Thank you so much. Uh, we, we end on a positive note and a hopeful note there. Thank you so much for spending your time with us on turning hard times into good times. Folks, you know the question uh, is inflation or deflation. We didn't really get an answer out of John on that, I think, because probably nobody knows for sure. But don't go away, because coming up next, we're going to talk to Robert Blumen. He is a student of Austrian economics, and we're going to talk about exactly that. Which way or what do we have to look for as we try to prepare our finances? Is the system going to inflate or deflate? So don't go away. We'll be right back with Robert Blumen. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Millrock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Millrock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Tech, Valet, Inmet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Millrock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human
You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. In the last segment of this week's show just ended, I failed to get an opinion from my guest, John McManus, on what is no doubt the most frequently discussed topic on this show, and that is inflation or deflation. With few exceptions, most of the guests in this show that we have had believe that there will be no soft landing, that we are going to have a period of extreme turmoil, either of one or the other, either the inflationary, hyperinflationary scenario or a deflationary depression. On the inflationary side, we've had folks like Congressman Ron Paul, John Williams, James Turk, Mark Faber, J.M. Schuler, William Baker, Sean Broderick, and Pat Gorman, to name just a few. On the deflationary side, we've had people like Robert Prechter, Bob Hoy, Ian Gordon, Jisper Gunenwagen, Mish Shedlock, Trace Meyer. All of these fellows seem to think uh, that <clears throat> deflation is inevitable, not only deflation, but a deflationary depression. Some suggest something worse than our grandparents went through during the 1930s. Others have sort of lean towards deflation, Addison Wiggins, Brian Rich, Dr. Robert McHugh, Ian McAvity, I would say, Michael Pansner. They sort of lean towards the deflation side, but they're not quite sure which way we're going to go. And then others are pretty even-handed. I think of people like David Tice, David Morgan, Bill Lagner, Kevin Duffy, John Hathaway, Rick Rule, Rick Mayberry, although Rick Mayberry tends towards the inflation side. So we've had a real mix of all kinds of you know, people on both sides of the fence and some people sitting on the fence, not knowing which way, uh, having a strong opinion about which way we're going to go. And this is a very important question, of course, because it makes all the difference in the world as to how we invest our money. If we're in an inflationary environment, we may want to buy commodities and, and stuff of all kinds. But if we're in a deflationary environment, maybe, maybe not. Maybe we want to hold more cash, more paper money. Maybe we want to hold more gold. So this is a very important question. It's one that's not easy, uh, easily resolved, as, as you can see. We have a lot of smart people on both sides of the argument that will help us reach a more informed decision as to which way we are likely to head. I have asked a person that I've known for a number of years, his name is Robert Blumen, to come and talk to us about this to give us a better understanding of this great debate. Robert is a computer software engineer in San Francisco. He writes on economic issues for the Ludwig von Mises Institute, LouRockwell.com, Mark Faber's Gloom, Boom, and Doom Report, and other websites and print publications as well. Welcome, Robert, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you, Jay. Well, it's really, really great to have you. You recently wrote some remarks uh, noting that many of the arguments used by some of the better-known deflationists are quite flawed. Of course, that is what I want to focus on with you for sure. But as to the question of whether or not we can muddle through with some sort of a soft landing and then come back up and have a nice period of growth and prosperity again, do you buy that? And if not, why not? No, I don't. My reason is 
primarily based on my understanding of Austrian School of Economics, which would be another entire discussion in itself. But I'll say briefly, uh, von Mises' theory of the credit cycle is you can't have a boom, uh, an unsustainable credit-driven boom without some kind of a workout, and I don't think we've really had the workout. And the focus of policy has been to prevent the economy from getting back to a point where sustainable growth could occur. Mm -hmm. um, I, if, if I'm not mistaken, Robert, I believe that you've probably, uh, you personally, after having given a great deal of thought to this whole question of inflation or deflation, probably lean more towards the inflation side of the of that, that would be fair, yes, although I see the issue of whether we could have a soft landing or not is not entirely a monetary issue. Oh, what else could affect that? Uh, well, Mises, again, his theory of boom and bust was that these booms do a lot of structural damage to resource allocation in the real economy, mm -hmm. and the recovery requires that that process be... Uh, corrected so it's really the real the reorganization of the real economy that it, it gets you to the end of the recovery mm -hmm. i if i'm not mistaken your view is that if government kept their hands off of the economy if there was no intervention um money manipulation money uh you know increase cre creation of money and credit and uh, debt out of out of nothing that, in fact, uh, we would be facing deflation without, without any doubt. Is that fair to say? That's right, because uh, maybe we'll get more into this. The, the credit-driven boom is characterized by an expansion of loans within the banking system. So uh, left to its own devices, the banking system would have to contract their balance sheets, and that would be a deflation. Okay, and... But what are the chances of government keeping their mitts off? Zero to none? I did some research on Bernanke before he became the Federal Reserve Chairman. He was a prominent Fed economist. He had teams of economists there writing papers for him. If you type in the word Bernankeism into Google, it should take you to my article. It became clear that the Fed are very deflation-averse, and they feel that their mission is to do anything to prevent deflation they believe that deflation and depression are the same thing, mm. that by avoiding contraction in the money supply, they can keep the economy on a good track. So they're mm. going to fight it. They're going to do everything they can within their power to stop. Well, that's a good... So within their power, that's, uh, that's another question. But do you, uh, do you believe deflation and depression are the same thing? They're not, no. Uh, the workout process that characterizes the recovery may be deflationary, but that's what we call the depression. It's a depression because you have people who are unemployed, you have decline in asset values, but it's really the healing process. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's where all the mistakes and the misallocation of the boom gets recognized. The mispricing of assets is corrected. So the, the so-called Depression is really the economy getting itself back to a point where sustainable growth can occur. And that can be a deflation, accompanied by a deflation. But uh, one of the things I don't like about a lot of the discussion of this issue is where people use deflation and depression to mean almost the same thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And they're not, actually. As you point out, the deflation is the, uh, is the cleansing or the, um, uh, the correction of the excesses. That's right, Jay. And so, but government, uh, when, when we talk about government, of course, the Federal Reserve is not the, the government, essentially. Is, it, it is a private corporation, but nonetheless, they work together, I guess, the government and the Fed are sort of like Matt and, Mutt and Jeff. They're, they're both, uh, they both team up together. Uh, why, why, would, why would they not allow this thing to correct? I mean, it's just a political issue, I guess. People want to get reelected, and, uh, or banks have an interest in seeing the, the system continue to inflate or what? Well, by Mises' view of the credit cycle, that the damage is done during the boom, you get wasteful allocation of resources. You have more projects that are started than there exist savings to complete. That view is really not a mainstream view in economics. No. The Ludwig von Mises Institute, they had to start their own institute because if it wasn't for a private institute to keep his books in print and teach and publish, his views would not be taught in universities. I believe that Bernanke and the other economists at the Fed and pretty much the whole economics profession, they are quite sincere in their own view, which is that they see uh, that they see the deflation as a destructive process, and they believe that they can manipulate the business cycle through monetary means. I, uh, I think there is a lot of uh, a lot of um, people sucking money out of the government for all kinds of reasons, but I believe at the core of it, there is this sincere, um, sincerely held idea mm-hmm. that this is how the economy works, and if we just Add enough money in the right time, we'll keep everything on this good, narrow path. So they don't believe in the free market. They're not really free market uh, practitioners, for sure. They don't believe that the free market would work things out for the better. They think that, that it's necessary for them to muddle or to meddle in the market. The overall discipline of macroeconomics, which has grown beyond Keynes, but it comes from the British econ- economist Keynes, and his theory was that the macro economy as a whole is inherently unstable for reasons of its own. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, we, we think markets on a micro level, markets are inherently stabilizing because of prices. There's really, you could boil all of economics down to one thing. It's that prices are what bring supply and demand into balance. So you shouldn't really have an excess of supply or demand if the price system is working if you see an excess of supply, the price of something needs to fall. And Keynes said, well, that's true uh, for an individual market like lemons or uh, apples or cars, but if you look at the, micro, the economy as a whole, you can have a mismatch between aggregate supply and aggregate demand that's endogenous to the market itself. Mm-hmm. So there is this fundamental premise in Keynes's system that the market as a whole is broken. Mm-hmm. And hence needs government, human beings, to fix it. It needs something that somehow is placing itself outside of the market mm-hmm. that will provide this so-called counter-cyclical policy of either deficits or surplus or printing money or adding bank reserves or all the other tricks that they have in the book to try to keep this endogenous business cycle from uh, destabilizing the market. 
Okay, so that's the policy. That's the policy premise. Of, I mean, that's the premise upon which current policy is being is being made, and we're seeing then the need to try to keep prices at artificially high levels. Have uh, we've had a, you know record amounts of intervention, record amounts of new money creation, record amounts of of bailouts and so forth since the Lehman Brothers collapse in in two thousand and eight. Uh, how's it working so far? The goal of the policy is to prevent this adjustment process. This boom has created a lot of what I call false prices. There's a, a great economist who writes for the Mises Institute called Dr. Frank Shostak. Mm -hmm. He uses the term artificial forms of life, which are economic activities which don't have any real basis in terms of consumer demand that are funded on the back of all the credit that gets created during the boom. So what has to happen for the economy to get back to sustainable growth is these artificial forms of life have to be eliminated and the labor, the resources freed up to go somewhere where they're needed. And the way that should happen is through the price system where these false prices get uh, corrected to true prices that really bring supply and demand into balance. The whole goal of policy has been to preserve false prices in the stock market, the bond market, banks, the mortgage market, the auto market, mm -hmm. to prevent the market from discovering the actual prices of things that will uh, allow the, uh, the economy to function on a, real, um, on, a, on a real basis of supply and demand. So we've had, you know, we've we've had uh, many politicians try price and wage controls in the past. In a sense, this is this is sort of a a way of controlling prices or trying to keep fictitious or false prices uh, at an at artificially high levels, is it not? And, and does that not then cause more uh, more dislocations? Absolutely, it does because prices in the market economy. Uh, Prices are the result of resource allocation decisions, but they also guide resource allocation decisions. And this is something Mises and the whole Austrian school emphasizes. Interest is a price. Mm -hmm. Interest is a price that tells us people's preference for uh, immediate use of resources compared to future use of resources. There's always a premium on having something right now. If you have to wait for it, mm -hmm. not worth quite as much. Every kind of resource allocation in an entire market system has a component of time. So interest is one of the key variables in the way that people decide how to allocate resources. If you try to control the interest rate, then you have the possibility of screwing up everything. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, uh, they're certainly doing that by increasing the quantity of money. We're seeing interest rates uh, at record low levels pretty much uh, for some time now. Uh, Robert, it just dawned on me that we hadn't, we've, we've been, you know, talking about inflation and deflation as if everybody knows what that is, but I think it might, it might be worthwhile for you to just define, you know, give us your definition or probably the Austrian school definition of both inflation and deflation. Um, well, there are several definitions out there. A definition is okay as long as you're consistent. Mm -hmm. And what's important is the relationship between cause and effect. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I talk about inflation and deflation, I'm talking about expansion or contraction in the supply of money. 
there are other people who define it in terms of prices or uh, looking at the volume of credit. Now, the reason I want to focus on money is because prices are an expression of a quantity of money that you have to exchange for a good or service. When we talk about prices, prices are formed by somebody offering money for a good and somebody else accepting it. Robert Prechter, just to bring in someone that I frequently disagree with, if you look on his website, he says deflation is an expansion or contraction in the volume of money and credit, mm -hmm. which is fine if he wants to choose that as a definition, but then he goes on and says that the volume of money and credit, uh, or he says a decline in the volume of credit leads to a general fall in prices. Mm. That is a really serious confusion because credit is not money. You don't pay for things with money. Credit only affects the price system in an indirect way. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you pay for things with money. You don't pay for things with credit, right? That's right. Okay, so there's a sort of a, what Prechter does then is lumps the two together as if they're the same thing? As if they both have the Effect. same impact on the price system. I see. Okay. I think that's an important part of your, uh, of your article that you've uh, recently read, uh, written. Um, so maybe, maybe we need to just then define, I guess money then is defined that way. Money is what you use to buy things with. Credit, you don't buy things with it. You use credit. Can you explain the difference between credit and money then? Just yeah, well, money is the means of payment. So mm -hmm. if you look around in any particular economic system and notice when somebody has something for sale, what is it they are want in return? Or uh, if you want to buy something, what is it you can offer? And in most any place you go in the world, it'll probably be one thing, and that thing will be money, whatever the money is in that region. So uh, now credit is a transfer of existing money Let's say I had $100, Jay, and I loan you $100. So I have 100 fewer dollars and you have 100 more dollars. Mm -hmm. That is credit. So notice that the money supply has not changed. It's only been shifted from me to you. Mm -hmm. And now let's say you had some type of a loan business. Uh, let's say I'm charging you 5% and you're going to have this loan sharking business where you loan it out at 15%, so you loan out the $100. Now your customer has it, but all that's happening when credit transactions occur is that money that already existed is moving around. Mm -hmm. So my purchasing power is reduced. I have $100 less ability to buy things, and somebody else now has $100 more ability to buy things. Mm -hmm. Okay, so credit hasn't, has not increased in that case. However, there are cases where credit... Let me correct you on that. Okay. So let's say we start from a base. Uh, there's no credit. We just landed on a desert island. Now I loan you $100. So total credit in the economy is now $100. Mm -hmm. Total money supply hasn't changed. Now you loan out that money to your customer. Mm -hmm. So now uh, you have become a creditor and a debtor. There's two loans. The total supply of credit or the total quantity of credit is now $200. Mm -hmm. So credit can increase as the same amount of money gets 
loaned through the system. And if that debt either were defaulted or paid back, then the credit would decrease. But the money supply stayed the same. Okay, so that same $100 was first lent to me, and then I lent it to somebody else. So the total amount of credit was $200, but the money supply has remained the same. Correct. Okay. All right. Uh, That would be a case. Now, can you – there are cases, for example, um, maybe you can give us an example of a money market fund. Is that, for example, is that – when you put money in a money market, a money market mutual fund, for example – is that credit or is that money? That is credit. This is a, a very um, controversial point, Jay. Within the Austrian school, there's a, several economists and a finance guy named Michael Polaro, who has a great website on TrueSlant, who's come up with what they call the Austrian definition of money, or AMS, where they've tried to count up all those components of the financial system that are money and money alone. Whereas if you look at the monetary aggregates from the Fed, like M1, M2, M3, they count different forms of credit, including money market funds, as part of the money supply. But what a money market fund really is, is it's a mutual fund that invests in short-term credit securities. Mm -hmm. And while it might offer check writing, and you think it's like money because you have a checking account at a bank, it's not really money. What happens when you write a check on a money market fund is the fund manager receives your check when it clears. He sells that much of the assets in his portfolio for money that somebody else offered in exchange for those securities, then they send you the money or they send the money to the person who redeemed your check. Mm-hmm. So it's um, it's not fundamentally different than saying if you had a debt and you sold your car mm-hmm. for money to pay off your debt. Mm-hmm. All right. So we haven't had an increase in the money supply in that case. Uh, Robert, I think we need to talk about fractional reserve banking and non-fractional reserve banking because there is a fundamental difference. We have a fractional reserve banking system now, but this is really key, isn't it, to understanding this whole inflation-deflation argument. Now, could you maybe just define very quickly what we mean by fractional reserve banking? Yeah, well, let's start out with non-fractional reserve because that's easier to understand. Uh, The case I was talking to you about where I have $100 and I loan it to you, Neither of us are banks. Mm-hmm. So a loan is simply a transfer of money that already existed from one person to another. Mm-hmm. Now, if a bank uh, did the same thing, that would be a non-fractional reserve bank. Or if you bought a bond from a corporation, you've loaned them existing money that you already had. Fractional reserve banking is uh, where a, a bank loans out money, but then treats that loan as if it were money. So they loan new money into existence. Mm-hmm. So if I take out a loan to buy a car, I've done my part to increase the money supply in essence. Uh, if you took it out from a, a, fra- from, a bank. From a bank, yeah. yeah. Not not from my brother Roger, for example. Yeah. So uh, I, let's say I deposit 100 in the bank, and the bank says, okay, Mr. Blumen, Here's your bank statement. It shows you have $100 in your account. You walk in, they loan you the $100, 
and immediately, let's say you didn't do anything with it, you, you simply left it in your account with the bank. So now you have $100 in your account as well. So there's now $200 worth of credit, but the bank only has $100 of deposits. So they've, they've loaned money into existence that did not exist before the loan. Okay, so what, to what extent can banks lend money into existence? I, I don't know what the regulatory limit on that is. There used to be a very simple formula that I think it was around a 10 to 1 ratio, mm-hmm. but that's been replaced by these reserve requirements from international bank regulatory treaties. So uh, in practice, I don't know what the rule is for individual banks. If you look at Michael Polaro's Austrian money supply figures, he says the total money supply is around $7 trillion, mm-hmm. of which there is about $2 trillion of money proper, which is either uh, bank reserves or currency. So that would be a ratio of about 7 to 2, which is 3.5 to 1. Mm-hmm. But some people believe that a lot of the currency is out of the country. So uh, if you think maybe a trillion dollars of currency was outside outside of the banking system, then that ratio of covered to uncovered loans within the banking system would be higher. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's. you mentioned covered to uncovered loans. Uh, could you just perhaps tell our listeners what you mean by that? Yeah, so the covered, uh, covered loan is the loan that I gave you where there's a direct money to back the loan. The uncovered loans are the loans which were loaned into existence above and beyond any amount of actual money to back them up. Okay, would a covered loan, an example of a covered loan would be a collateralized loan? Would that be a covered loan? No. No. We're purely talking about covered by money, by by base money or not covered by base money. Okay, so in the fractional reserve banking system, you can have uncovered money, which is made by banks. That's correct. And that, to tie that into inflation deflation, that uncovered money is the money that is vulnerable to deflation, that is the money that could go away if the debt were to default. And because that is money that was created out of nothing, there's nothing behind it in essence except debt. Yes. And then when that debt starts to default, it can have a chain reaction. It can start to to feed on itself, right? Yeah, you're talking about about something, this is uh, from, I believe, the famous economist Irving Fisher, the debt deflation spiral, Mm -hmm. where uh default of debt we need to drill down into this a little more how the default of debt can wipe out money because it's not quite that straightforward but mm-hmm. you have debt default it puts more pressure on the bank balance sheets they have to contract their balance sheets reduce the amount of loans which reduces the amount of money because mm-hmm. some of those loans have a dual nature as money less money means that prices in general have to fall. Business revenues fall, people's incomes fall, because those are all prices, makes it more difficult to repay loans, which means more loans go into default. So you have this self-feeding process, which would continue until you got to a level where the bank's balance sheets were stable enough that they uh, 
did not have to contract them anymore. Okay, that would be the case where governments kept their hands off and the central banks kept their hands off. Yeah. The, uh, but that's not the case. We don't have that now. Yeah, have... it used to happen in the 19th century and the first couple of business cycles in the 20th century in America before, before we had the uh, Hoover-Roosevelt New Deal. Mm-hmm. But these days, yeah, they don't. They're very averse to any kind of deflation or bank failures. So, uh, so the central bank then, the Federal Reserve in our case, can go out there and buy debt. They can go out and buy almost anything. In fact, I think Bernanke said that we could, you know, we should go out and buy well exactly what we've done. We're going out and buy mortgages, uh, and and uh, could buy gold mines. I think he said he suggested buying everything and anything to monetize and to keep the, the, the to keep uh, money in the system. Is that is that what they're doing? Is when I what... did my research on Bernanke, I think this was back in 98, before he was Fed chairman, they had a number of research papers from the Fed saying, let's look at buying corporate bonds, let's look at buying stocks, real estate. And mm-hmm. the, the key here is when the Fed buys something, they can simply write a check and create money out of nothing there's no credit involved it's a pure money creation process mm-hmm. and that's what they've been doing i mean they certainly did it after the lehman brothers default they've been doing a combination of uh swapping good quality assets on their balance sheet for bad quality assets on the bank's balance sheets and outright monetizing debt which means writing a check on nothing and uh, buying, writing the money into existence to buy something. Okay, so then that money ends up in the banking system, right? That's right. Because and then what happens, though, if the banks, I mean, what we're hearing is that the loan, that, that the amount of loans are, are not growing very rapidly, or maybe in the case of consumer loans, uh, credit cards and so forth are actually contracting. So even though there's more money pumped into the system, it doesn't necessarily get out, does it? I mean, if, if bankers have to be confident they're going to get their money back. Yeah, uh, so banks, that's right, banks are not really making loans into the economy. They're loaning the money back to the Fed. Mm-hmm. And there could be a number of reasons for that. One is that until this workout or purging process goes on in the system, it's, uh, it's harder to tell really who the good credit risks are until you write down the assets and on the balance sheet of corporations and you you um, find out really where the resources are in the economy. Another reason could be there's a another great economist who's written a lot for the Mises Institute named Robert Higgs. He's coined this term a regime uncertainty, which is that people are so uncertain about the legal environment, the tax environment. You have these cascade of two to 3,000-page bills that are radically altering the system of law we have in America, people don't know what the rules of the game are going to be, whether they'll be allowed to keep any of their wealth in the future if they have any. The uh, legal climate is too uncertain for people to invest, so that could be another reason. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is, uh, it seems as though it's not having the effect of, of growing the economy. Now, I know that you're not an advocate 
of any of this policy in, in terms of you know uh, increasing the money supply and all that you you would believe as you more or less stated earlier that you really what really should happen is the market should be allowed to prevail and get rid of all these these bad debts get them wiped off the books so we could start to uh, to correct the excesses, the malinvestment, to use an Austrian term, that was made uh, and has caused all this problem, because we have we have we have a debt growth, if not uh, a very very rapid debt growth, is growing much more rapidly than income is growing. It seems, so we need to see this this system purged. We need to see the market really cleanse the system, right? But it's not happening. But they're trying to keep the prices up. They're pumping money in the system. Is it going to work, Robert? I think we've already covered that. Uh, it can't work because in order for people to start allocating resources again, they need to have an idea of what's really scarce, what's really plentiful, mm -hmm. what is the real state of supply and demand in the economy. And as long as the policy is devoted to keeping false prices in place, then people can't figure out where the good investments are. Okay, but I mean, I think what I, I didn't phrase the question properly, is it going to work in the sense that they're going to be able to keep prices up or get them to grow again? They can certainly prevent prices from falling if that's their goal because they have an unlimited power to create money out of nothing. Mm -hmm. but what they can't do is keep the structure of prices the way they want. What I think they want is we had this unsustainable growth in housing prices relative to the incomes of people who would buy the house and their ability to service a debt. Yes. So what has to happen is the ratios have to get back in line. The relative value of price of homes relative to rent, price relative to income, the affordability ratios have to get back in line. They can't really... They, they, what they want is prices of houses went up. They want them to just stay there. Mm -hmm. So if they're determined to accomplish that, they can by pumping money into the credit markets, the mortgage markets. But eventually what has to happen is rents, wages have to catch up mm -hmm. to bring those ratios back in line because the market is always trying to bring things back to that equilibrium. And mm -hmm. so the money will flow somewhere if they if they're determined to keep house prices at one level then they could do that but uh they can't keep houses in a chronic state of being overpriced right uh without creating a lot of other uh, difficulties uh one uh, one person we've had on this show dr robert McHugh, has suggested that the only way they could really get this sort of banking system to start expanding again would be to his suggestion was to roll back taxes for the last three years and put trillions of dollars in the hands of common folks, and they would start buying, you know, paying off their mortgages and paying for, um, you know, the, uh, I guess the basic needs in life and so on and so forth. It sounds a little bit Keynesian in a way, uh, but what are your thoughts on that? Is that something that could that could sort of get things moving again? Well, I'm in favor of rolling back taxes, and that that does help with the process because it allows people to allocate resources rather than central planners. I think I listened to that McHugh show, and my, my take on that was he did sound like uh, a bit of a Keynesian in the belief that consumption is what drives everything. So if you mm -hmm. can get people spending, that will get the uh, spending on consumer goods. Right. That will get the economy moving again. 
generally uh, the Austrians see the problem more as the whole structure of investment prices that you uh, you either have too much or too little investment or the wrong kind of investment. And consumption is the reward when investments have been successful, which requires the whole price system to be functioning. And that will take care of itself if the government just gets out of the way. So there isn't a need. I, I got a little bit of a kind of a stimulus mentality from that Mm-hmm. interview, if I remember it. Yes, I, I think that's fair to say of, of Robert's view on that. Uh, we've, we've only got a couple of minutes here. Actually, Robert, unfortunately, it's gone, gone too fast, the time here. But I have to ask you, then, if we could sort of sum up, I think the argument that a lot of the deflationists have made, uh, they may be overlooking something. I, I think your, your point is that the, that, there, that the amount of money that can be deflated out of existence uh, is much smaller than what some of the uh, some of the yeah. proponents, deflationists or proponents. Could you possibly just hit on that a little sure. bit? Sure. Well, I, like I was talking about, Prechter, there's this amalgamating of the money and credit together. I found on the Fed's website a number for total U.S. dollar credit markets as around 50 trillion. So if you think that that whole 50 trillion is going to default, then people who say the Fed doesn't have enough money or enough political will to create $50 trillion are probably true. But uh, it's really only the uncovered portion of the money supply within the banking system that can generate deflation, and that's about $5 trillion. Mm-hmm. The Fed has already been uh, active in mortgage markets for about half that much. Mm-hmm. So, And it wouldn't all $5 trillion of bank debt wouldn't go bad on the same day. Right. So people who – it makes the problem, if you lumped money and credit together, it makes the magnitude of a deflation sound much, much bigger than it is, and it makes mm-hmm. the Fed seem relatively much more powerless than they are. Mm-hmm. All the Fed really needs to be willing to do is to step in and prevent any individual bank from failing by monetizing the bank's liabilities – and the, the upper bound on that today is $5 trillion. But they wouldn't have to do it all on one day. It would be one bank here, one bank there. So that is why you're saying that they can definitely stabilize prices if they want to almost indefinitely. They can prevent a collapse in the money supply. Okay. The price system is still massively distorted. So Prechter is probably right in that there uh, has to be some kind of contraction in asset markets, but that means some money, same amount of money has to go somewhere else. So you'd see other prices in the system adjust upwards. Well, um, Robert, I think you've, I think you've hit on the the dynamics of both inflation and deflation, um, perhaps maybe more on deflation than inflation. If you could just sum up perhaps and tell our listeners why on balance you believe inflation is the bigger threat than deflation. If you could do that, please, in closing. Well, it's primarily that the Fed is composed of these deflation phobes and that they feel their mission is to do anything from preventing a deflation. So they are very much attuned with preventing these monetary aggregates from contracting and preventing banks from failing. And they do have the power to prevent banks from failing one bank at a time, which means we can be pretty sure that the money supply will not contract because the remedy is to create enough money to 
keep any particular bank from failing. And there's no apparent limit to the amount of credit um, money that can be created out of thin air by the Federal Reserve, right? There's nothing inherent in the mechanics of it. It's uh, a matter of when do you think that they would lose the political will to create more money. Very interesting. And that is a question because we have a lot of people are getting pretty angry about the Fed creating money, uh, bailing out the Goldman Sachs. Uh, they're, they're getting un, un, uh, very unhappy. The Tea Party, I think, is a movement that's, that's protesting the, uh, the endless amounts of debt that the government is and money that's being created to cover those and to pay for those debts. So I, it's, it's an interesting time, Robert. It really is. And I want to thank you so much for sharing your, your insights into this, uh, into this issue. I think, it's, I think it is the most important issue out there for investors these days because it really does make a difference how you're going to invest your money. So uh, thank you, Robert. That's unfortunately all the time we have. We've actually run over the time I, I really had. But we uh, maybe are going to have to have you back sometime to talk about some of the other issues because I know you write quite extensively. And if you could just let our listeners know again where they can track your work. Uh, most of my stuff is under daily articles on the Mises Institute, M-I-S-E-S.org, and on lewrockwell.com in the archives. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Robert Blumen, for being with us today. Folks, that's all the time we have for now, but don't go away. I'll be right back with a few closing comments on this week's show. Solid and Gold is focused on the exploration and development of its wholly owned Showindo Gold Project in Peru. The company is currently undertaking the largest exploration program to date on the property and with this, expects to continue increasing its current mineral resource. A preliminary assessment was completed last year, highlighting a very positive and economical project, and a bankable feasibility study is currently underway. Don't miss this great opportunity to embark on an emerging gold production story. Visit www.solidan.com to learn more the business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network welcome to the human race some kind of love and ride i'll be sliding down i'll be gliding down try not to try too hard you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Unfortunately, we don't have enough time to do any kind of a meaningful wrap-up this week. There's just too much ground to cover and not enough time. I have just enough time to tell you that next week's guest will be John McManus of the John Birch Society and to say thank you again for listening. Also, thanks to Tacey Trump, my senior executive producer, operations manager, Ruben Columbia, and my engineer, Justin Jackman. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time.